Well, you know, we had a great, uh, a very rich morning last week, and uh, there was no sermon. It was just a great morning to be together. I actually had several people say to me, uh, I, I got a note, I had people calling me, people saying to me, boy, it was so gracious of you to give up your sermon time. <laughs> you think I did that willingly? <laughs> no, it was, it was absolutely wonderful the week we had last week to just be a family together and share some of the things we did. And we ran out of time for a sermon. And when I say time, I mean you all have expectations about when we might finish here. And I know sometimes we need to just bust that limit wide open and not worry about what time you think you need to be home. And then there are other times when we need to be conscious and aware of all of that. And last week was just one of those times when we had some family time together and it was, uh, it was just a great time. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting that people would say it was so gracious of me to give up my sermon time. You know, I, it's not as though um, I just have to be up in front of you people, Okay. Sometimes people think that preachers just have to be in front of people and that that's why they do what they do because they love the attention and the notoriety and being standing, standing up in front of people. And I would like to think that my motivation for preaching would be deeper than that. I'd, I'd like to think that my time here spent would be to enrich the church and to teach the Bible and to proclaim the word of the Lord. And so I hope that we can always kind of perceive it that way. And when I don't get a chance to preach, if those things are being done anyway, then praise the Lord. It just needs to happen in our family the way that it happens in any way that God blesses us as that takes place. Um, there are disagreements that sometimes happen uh, among Christians. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. My guess is you have. Sometimes churches argue about things like what color the carpet is supposed to be or what color the walls are to be, are to be painted. Sometimes Christians argue about where that wall is to stand. Maybe the wall should be moved. Have you ever had that argument in, in this church as I look at this wall? Sometimes people wonder whether the pulpit should be wooden or whether it should be clear plastic. Churches debate these issues. Should our gym be a gym? Or should our gym be a fellowship hall? Well, we could argue about that, I suppose. Uh, should we have songbooks in our pews or not? Is an issue that sometimes churches wrestle with. Should the church, maybe getting into a little bit more pertinent issue, should the church spend its money on things like church buildings? Is there really value in that? When we know that there, for example, are hungry people in the world or people who don't know Christ. And yet, there is some value in having a place to meet in January in Calgary. Should we sell coffee as a fundraiser? Some people think it's, that's inappropriate because we're, it's that money changer kind of attitude. Not to mention the fact that we have guests who come here. Why should we make our guests who come here pay for coffee? We should be friendly enough to just give it to them. And yet, for us to fundraise with our coffee bar is absolutely wonderful because eventually people will go to Mexico because of the money that's raised through our coffee sales. So that's all wonderful. Now, those are, in many ways, very minor issues. There are some major issues that people sometimes argue about, things like style of church leadership. And for a couple of thousand years, people have wondered about things like whether or not there should be bishops in the church. People argue about the mode of baptism. Do you sprinkle or do you immerse? And we have lengthy arguments about those. We, in Churches of Christ, have reached what I think is a very defensible position on that issue. 
But it doesn't save Christians from arguing about such things. What's the Lord's Supper all about? And what role should it have in our assembly? And then people argue about things like the divinity of, the divinity of Jesus. And just how much he is the son of God, divine, and how much he was a son of man and is human. Those kind of things uh, get debated. Well, the reason I bring up the fact that churches sometimes debate these kinds of issues is because our passage today is a classic text of debate among Christians. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 6. There are very few passages in the Bible, in the New Testament, that get kind of classical attention when it comes to debating doctrinal issues. Now, for those of you who are thinking to yourself right now, oh, he's going to talk about a doctrinal issue, and he's going to talk about debates within the fellowship of Christ. I am. It's exactly what I'm going to talk about. Because there are times when that is totally appropriate, and this morning is one of them. We're working through the book of Hebrews together, and I can't just ignore verses 4 and following in Hebrews chapter 6. I could just ignore it, I suppose. And then everybody would say, why did he not discuss those verses? And the reason I wouldn't discuss them, the only reason I can think of, is because you might have doubts about my opinions about those verses or my conclusion or it, it, because it would be controversial or something. And we need to go ahead and deal sometimes with those things that are controversial. And this is one of those passages. So I want you to read these with me. It won't be hard for those of you who know your Bibles and these kinds of issues. It won't be hard for you to, to pick up exactly where this is going in terms of the discussion that takes place. Hebrews chapter 6, look at verse 4. It says, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now the rest of the verses, in verses 4 through 12 or so, round out the discussion, but it's really these first three verses or so, which is the issue of controversy among Christians. And here is the concern. What is it that this passage teaches concerning the eternal salvation of Christians and whether or not their life in Christ is so secure that there is no possibility for them to fall? That's the issue. Is it possible for Christians, for those who've come to Jesus Christ and know Him as Savior and Lord, is it possible for them to fall away from their faith and lose their salvation? And the reason why this is an issue, for those of you who may not know, is that there are lots of people, people who've been serving Jesus Christ for a long time, who are convinced that it's not possible to fall out of fellowship with Christ. They would read passages like in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and following. And don't turn there now, but you can look at that sometime on your own. And you can see that that passage tends to point in that direction. And there are questions even that Paul raises in Romans chapter 8 about things like, what will separate me from the love of Christ Jesus? And Paul goes through a list, a long list of things that could potentially separate us from Christ. And his conclusion at the end is, no, 
These things cannot separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. And the point of those who take the position that you cannot fall from grace or cannot fall from salvation is that Paul was trying to say in that place and other places that our security in Christ is eternal. And that God has made an eternal decision that you and I are specifically and personally his children and that as his children chosen by him to be his children we cannot possibly lose our salvation if god is sovereign and he makes a choice that you're his child how can you possibly fall are you bigger than god so that you can control somehow his will if his will is for you to be his child and he's made that choice what can you possibly do to come out of that childhood of his and again, Romans 8, some would say, would point in the direction of saying nothing. There isn't anything you can do. And so those who are, and this is the language that's always used, those who are saved are always saved. And the question is, is that a biblical doctrine? Now that's an interesting question partially because for the last hundred years or so, there has been a large segment of Christendom who has said that to be an evangelical means to think along these lines. To be an evangelical means that you accept the notion that you cannot fall from grace. Essentially, taking what was historically the Calvinistic or Augustinian position when it comes to that question. But there is another segment of those who are in Christendom, namely those who would follow what's called Arminianism, and Methodism, who say, yes, indeed, we can fall from grace. And the fact is, is that traditionally, churches of Christ have taken that kind of position. We have been what we would call, even if we don't know it, Arminians. And we have said, it is possible to fall from grace. And so this morning, as we read these verses, I want to give you my opinion that's all it is in one sense, is just my opinion. But I've got some opinions about these verses, and I wanted to share them with you because you can't just leave the text alone. You've got to read through it. The first place I want you to go is just flip back a couple of chapters to Hebrews chapter 3. Look at the end of chapter 2 in verse 18 where the text says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And my question is, tempted to what? There's no mention in this passage of sexual immorality. There's no message, mess, uh, mention in this passage of drunkenness. There's no mention here of really anything except that throughout this book, the question is, are the people who are worshiping Christ going to be faithful? And so when at the end of chapter 2, the issue is raised, are we tempted and is Christ going to help us through that temptation? I would say that the real issue is, are we tempted to give up on Christ? Which I think means that the author is assuming that that can happen. That there are people who love Jesus Christ, have committed themselves to Jesus Christ, but who have the capacity, nonetheless, to be tempted to give up on Jesus. Now, if I'm chosen by God as his child to the point that I cannot fall, it doesn't seem to me like falling would be much of a temptation. But these people, I think, were being tempted to give up their salvation in Christ 
by sinning. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, notice he calls them brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your eyes and thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest, whom we confess. He calls them brothers. He wants them to fix their eyes on Jesus. And the purpose is so that they don't fall. So that they won't give in to the temptation of giving up their faith. He wants them to remain firmly rooted in him. Now look at verse 6 in the same chapter. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house and we are his house. Now when he says we are his house, I'm assuming he's saying we are his children. We are the saved. We are the body of Christ when he says we are his house. If we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. And my sense is that there's at least a possibility for us to not hold on to that hope and that courage of which we boast. And so it looks to me like that verse tends in the direction of saying we could fall. Look at verse 7. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. Well, it sounds to me there like we have the possibility of hardening our hearts. And he's writing, I think, to Christians in verse 7. So these passages, I, I think so far, kind of point in the direction of the possibility of Christians falling. Look at verse 12. See to it, brothers, that none of you calls them brothers, that none of you brothers has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That sounds to me like we could be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. It sounds like we could have unbelieving hearts. It sounds to me like we could turn away from the living God. Verse 14 says, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. And so we had a confidence in Christ, but there's the possibility of us leaving that confidence. And these again are brothers to whom he speaks. Now look at chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you writing to these Christians, be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said. And so he's again talking to believers and saying to them, don't release what you have in Jesus. You have the promise of entering his rest. It still stands. Don't let go of that. Don't release it. The you there is those who believe. Then chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Sounds to me like there's the possibility of falling and that the writer's encouraging them not to fall. And then verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. As if there's the possibility that maybe we won't hold firmly to the faith that we profess. And so he's exhorting them to hold fast to the faith that we profess. Now, if I just take all of those passages so far, it seems to me like there's kind of a cumulative argument building. That as I go through those passages, the real point of these passages, the whole point of the, of the book in one sense is, stay faithful to Christ when you're challenged to fall. And if that's the point of the book, and if all these verses have been moving in that direction, then it makes sense to me when I get to chapter 6, and it says that it's impossible for those who've once been enlightened, in verse 4, 
who've tasted the heavenly gift and who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. It sounds to me like if the cumulative argument is going in the direction it is, that this passage too is going to follow that argument. And it's going to say this passage is about not falling in Christ. That indeed we could fall, but the Hebrew writer is exhorting us not to give up on our faith. Now, there's a lot of debates that are fairly insignificant. The color of the carpet and the color of the walls or where the wall stands is not very significant. What time we meet on Sunday morning... Not very significant. Uh, Whether or not you get your spot in the pew on Sunday morning or somebody takes it from you, as they may have done this morning, not very significant. I actually heard the story one time about a church in Riverside, California, where the church leadership made a a decision one week that they were going to get rid of some of the pews. They, they didn't have enough people. They weren't able to fill all the pews, and so they wanted to get rid of some of the pews, and so they took the back two rows out, thinking this will make it look fuller. We don't need all those pews anyway. That Sunday, the brother comes in. He looks. His spot in the pew, it's gone because the pew is gone. Where do you think he sat? On the floor. He sat on the floor right where his pew had always been. He'd been sitting there for 20 years. He's going to sit there again, and he sat on the floor. And so at the end of the service, after he'd been sitting on the floor, he stood up at the end, and he looked at the crowd, and he said, Next week... My pew will be back. The sad thing is, it was. They gave in. They gave in and they told him, okay, you can have your pew back if you're going to sit on the floor. I think they should have taken all the pews out. Everybody should have just sat on the floor with him. My point is, is that sometimes we get to fighting about things that are pretty inconsequential. This is not one of them. And here's the reason. You and I have the potential to fall. You and I have the potential of losing our faith. I think that's what Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 6 is talking about. I think that the church in Hebrews had lost its vision. It had lost its nerve. It had lost its desire to be faithful to Jesus no matter what. And when temptation came, like in verse 18 of chapter 2, for them to release themselves from belief... To no longer trust Christ. They were potentially choosing no longer to trust Christ. And the Hebrew writer thought that this was such a big issue. Not one of these little ones to divide about. But a big issue that he said you need to make sure that you don't fall. And and brothers and sisters we live in a generation and a time. Where there's the potential for you and me to fall. There are things in our society and our world that could potentially draw us away from Christ. And the question is, are you going to let it happen in your life or in the life of your family? The world draws you, and you know this so well, the world draws you into materialism. 
How many people have you known who were faithful to the Lord Jesus, but because of their aspirations for worldly wealth, they ended up losing their faith? How many of those people do we look and say, they're just not here anymore. Why are they not here? They used to come. They used to be involved. They used to be part of things. Where are they now? It is very possible that the reason they're no longer here is simply because they have been caught up in materialism. It's one of the world's draws. And it draws us away from faith. Sometimes we're drawn away by sensuality. I'm convinced that one of the reasons that people don't come is because they're guilty about their own lack of control of lust in their lives. And our world confronts it with confronts us with that constantly it challenges us and somehow we're going to have to stay faithful through that the world draws us to different faith systems there are options galore about what we could believe in and trust in and place our intellectual and philosophical allegiances what will you believe the hebrew writer is asking will you continue to trust christ and in a world that challenges us constantly With other options, we need to trust Christ. The world draws us to see Christ simply as one among many. I remember the first sermon from Hebrews very well. It says, the sermon said, we need to make sure that like the Hebrew writer, we claim Christ as exclusively the Lord of our universe, and he is. We need to stay there. The world draws us into selfishness. Man, it is so easy for me to be centered on me. It's no wonder somebody would write me a note and say, oh, you gave up your time of preaching. Well, I understand your concern and I appreciate that very much, but I hope you don't think that my goal is to selfishly stand before you and speak. We want simply to proclaim the word of God. And there's just so much self-centeredness and selfishness that exists in our world today. There's a sense of hopelessness that draws people away. Sometimes people don't get from the church all the things that they need and they just feel so hopeless that at the end they go somewhere else to try and find hope. And sometimes it's to a bottle, sometimes it's to drugs, sometimes it's to the sensuality that we talked about, sometimes it's other environments. They just think I can do something else which will provide me hope. Well, materialism and all those other things are not going to do it. Hope is found in Jesus Christ. And so the question this morning is, the Hebrew writer is asking this and he asks it even in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Will you remain faithful? Will you remain faithful? When the world constantly challenges you as it does, will you remain faithful? Parents, are you going to teach your children about Jesus Christ as being the Lord of the universe so that you remain faithful? There are people who make other choices. And the Hebrew writer says, don't make that choice. You have the freedom to fall. You could fall into sin. You could fall into a lack of faith. Don't make that choice. And church in a world where probably our Many in society would love us to just kind of go away. Stop proclaiming Jesus. We need to keep proclaiming Christ. We need to remain faithful. And if there are things that we teach that are unpalatable to a sinful world, then let them be unpalatable. Maybe they will hear the word of God and they will be altered in their hearts and minds and come to Christ. But for us... We cannot fall. We must remain faithful. Let's pray.
Lord, help us to have faith forever. Lord, help us to recognize the possibilities for our fall. Help us to be diligent. Help us to be aware of our weaknesses. Help us to be aware of your truth that calls us and to not give in to those weaknesses so that we preserve the truth about Jesus. Father, bless us as a church to not just remain faithful, but with faith to proclaim to our world who Jesus is and to have an impact on that world. And Father, especially I want to pray this morning for those who are weak in faith. Father, I want to pray for those who are tempted to give up on you. Father, help us as a church to not give up on them. Help us as a church to minister significantly to them and let them know how much both you love them and how much we do. And Father, for those who who are tempted to give up faith because of sin, because of the temptation that sin is in life to draw us away and to live lifestyles that are not in line with who you are. Father, I pray you'd help us to say and to do things, offer encouragement and to be family for them in such a way that we can help preserve them for you and that their lives would be free from sin. Father, I'm so grateful for this book that challenges us, that confronts us. Father, I'm grateful for those who recognize in the truth of this passage the possibility that we could fall and that we need, therefore, Father, the strength of your spirit to have our lives preserved in you. Help us, Father, to have faith. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing, please.